Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, Variety's podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Todd Spangler with Variety. Today, our guest is Thomas Day, president and CEO of ACF Investment Bank and a top dealmaker in the media and entertainment business. Thomas, welcome. Hi, Todd. Thank you. So you co-founded ACF in 2010. You've since then brokered numerous M&A deals across the sector. Um, so just maybe start off by saying, what is the lens through which you look at the industry? Well, as, as the listeners can tell from my voice, um, I started in the UK um, really at the start of the TV production industry, as I consider it, back in 2003, when the Communications Act came in transferring the rights of TV production uh, creations from the broadcaster to the actual, the producers and the creators. And that was the real start of the industry because these companies became very valuable. Um, so I think my perspective is, is really one of spanning sort of you know, two decades. And I've seen the industry morphing and changing from um, broadcast to cable and now to streaming. My first question here is there's been a definitive shift in viewing habits during the coronavirus pandemic um, and how media companies are reaching consumers. What, what are your thoughts here on how permanent this shift in behavior is and, and what are the implications uh, for your business? Um, there couldn't be a more fundamental shift target that has occurred really in the last five years. Um, and the reason for that is that the whole business model itself has shifted. If we think back to free-to-air linear viewing, um, people turn on the TV and what's on the TV they watch. And in between the shows, there's adverts that are being shown to them. And that is the real generator of cash for the broadcaster. So the relationships actually between the broadcaster stroke network and the advertiser and the actual consumer is a byproduct or, or actually the product themselves of that exchange because they're watching the advert. So we've had this very complicated model for you know, 50, 70 years or longer where actually the consumers were a secondary consideration and just by their volume of numbers, they were considered important. Now, this has changed completely to um, the consumers becoming the subscribers, and they're directly engaging with the digital platforms to see the kind of content they want to see, and they're controlling what they see and when they see it. Um, and this is being distributed now through quite a clever algorithm, as opposed to um, you know, expensive marketing. So... The whole model has changed fundamentally to what I believe to be a superior product at a lower pricing point. Well, it hasn't completely changed. You still have TV networks. There's still large audiences for linear television. There's still players in the game, aren't they? I agree. And, and, and I think free-to-air and, and broadcast and curated content will always have a place on, on our, our schedule. But I think that, especially your question earlier about the pandemic, um, people are talking about what are they watching on the streaming platforms more than anything else right now. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I can't, it's difficult to know where the new 
sort of cable cutting numbers will, will end up. But I think it will be a lot deeper and a lot lower than people think. It's an unstoppable trend, no doubt about it. And you're seeing companies like Disney, Warner Media, NBC Universal in the United States, they're all shifting to point toward this direct model going forward. I mean, they're putting all of their chips on that uh, piece of felt, aren't they? Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, every week you're seeing a new article in, in, you know, in the paper and variety, you know, in, in, in magazines, talking about the shifts that are occurring. And these shifts are in institutions that have been around for 100 years. And now they're all changing their platform to really focus on content because the content then feeds into the digital platform. And we're seeing this right across the studios, right across the broadcasters, and right across the networks. Talk a little bit, Thomas, about the deal flow and the pace of the deals that you've had in the last, say, nine months during this during this lockdown period. Is it has it gone up? Has it stayed the same? You know, we've seen productions halting. Has that had an effect on the types of deals you're able to do? I think I think two things. I think one one is that the types of companies that were reliant on large production crews going to faraway places. Um, these were the sort of traditional shows that were creating the profits that sold the companies that we were acting for. And when COVID hit, that we had about 10 deals in progress and eight of them were instantly put on hold because the buyers had considerable issues in their own businesses where they were fighting fires and trying to work out what to do. And meanwhile, the, our clients, the sellers, were no longer confident of their pipeline or their production. So it was a, it was a complete uh, seizing up of the industry. Um, and I expected um, things to completely halt. Um, and what actually happened is those types of deals did halt. So I was right in that regard. I think where I was surprised or pleasantly surprised was a bunch of other deals did move forward. And people shifted their focus and we shifted our focus to try and find companies that didn't have that reliance. So companies that had other ways of growing or other ways of being. Now, let's talk about some of the recent deals that you've been um, advising on. Uh, you, were, uh, you were instrumental as, as an advisor for Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones Creators of Black Mirror, um, they did a multi-year deal with Netflix uh, for their new indie uh, production company, Broken Bones. Uh, this was reported to be a deal worth over $100 million. I don't know if you can comment on that, but um, what, um, what were the dynamics in that um, particular pack that you, that you uh, helped them secure? Of course, Tony. I mean, the terms of the deals are confidential, but... What I can talk about is that that type of deal was exactly the kind of deal I'm talking about. Um, Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones are the creators of Black Mirror. Um, they did so at their previous company that was at Endemol. Um, and Netflix was looking for a relationship with them and looking for a way to create compelling content. So this was a deal that was not reliant on huge teams of people and the historic performance, it was very much a deal looking forward and working with two of the most talented people in the industry and really marrying them up with one of the most exciting digital platforms. 
So this is all about growing a business going forward and creating more content, you know, like the Blackmore franchises. Now, once you see um, kind of water finding in its, its own level, let's say, and you've got whatever it is, uh, five or seven or 10 global streaming services, um, I mean, are we going to see a pullback on, you know, these kinds of pretty large overall deals with creators or is the competition just going to get fiercer for this kind of talent? I mean, I think that Netflix is one of the early initiators of these types of deals and they've been the most active in the sort of earliest time period. And some people would say they've overpaid. I don't know. I mean, it's, with all of these things, I, I think people are often accused, including the networks and broadcasters that we've sold over 100 companies to, they always talk about, you know, are they overpaying? And I think the, the question is, are there companies that aren't doing enough to meet the new challenges that are out there? And if you don't do enough, what is the price of that? Because I think, you know, capturing the top talent in the market um, is always going to be um, you know, a sure way of guaranteeing your future. Whereas being you know, maybe more conservative with your investments mean you might not be here. And I think, you know, so we've got to look at these shows and recognize that uh, with a piece of paper and a pen, these writers can create you know, billion dollar franchises. So I, I, it's really hard how to, to assess how much to pay up front to gain that kind of option. We were speaking a little bit earlier, and um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, you were saying that it's um, it's become uh, the case that where you have a, a more agile type of, of production, one that doesn't require a lot of infrastructure, that those deals have been... Um, been more fruitful in in getting them. the you mentioned i think the bear grills uh deal with with banage tell us a little bit about what that was what that involved and and why that happened at this particular time sure i mean i i think the deal with bear and uh banage closed slightly prior to uh, covid impact but i think it's a very good example and Certainly, I know, having you know, still working with them and, and contact them, that they've been doing very well, you know, going forward. Um, because if it, there's a very small production team that is being dropped by helicopter into the Amazon with uh, some fortunate or unfortunate leader of a country who then survives with them for X period of time. So this is very much a sort of small group of people that can create some quite exciting content without having huge crews, you know, necessarily interacting with each other. So I think that the natural studios, which is what the, uh, the, the opportunity was called, was about creating um, global content and really encouraging, you know, outdoor activity and entertainment across the world. And Banerjee has got a very huge network, and, you know, production companies in each territory. So it was a good marriage and it was a good idea. I should note before I forget that you've been recognized in Variety's Dealmakers Impact Report uh, for the last seven years, and um, just wanted to mention that. But um, on the topic of um, you know industry consolidation, obviously we've seen Disney um, buying the bulk of 21st Century Fox. Um, you're seeing 
you know, those, those types of um, massive deals, does that, um, does that put the brakes on M&A in the industry or does it accelerate, uh, you know, the scramble for positioning by other players? I think, sort of, if you look at the last of 10, 15 years, um, there, was, there was a steady growth of channels, there was a steady growth of cable, there was a high viewing interaction, but content became dispersed across many channels. And as a result, um, the, the broadcasters and the networks became very risk adverse to spending huge amounts of money on expensive scripted shows that after episode two could be canned. So really that was the birth of the reality TV and the sort of low cost, high volume viewing. Um, and as the advertising revenues kind of went down, as the viewers went down, this pressure put more and more pressure on the broadcasters and networks. And there was a downward spiral where their budgets went down and their viewing figures went down. So 16, 17 and 18 were not good years you know, for anyone in the industry. Um, you bring into 18, 19, 20 in these streaming platforms which have been preparing for their debutant outing, suddenly you come into the market and start spraying the kind of money we haven't seen for a decade. Um, it's completely changed the industry. It's brought back scripted high-end content from people like Left Bank who produced The Crown, you know, right across the board. Um, and, and I think I think the industry has actually allowed more and more of that money to pour into the hands of the creators, the on-screen talent, and the writers. So I, I foresee a very vibrant next five to ten years as people vie for those people's um, sort of attention and relationships. And I don't see any shortage of cash coming into the space. I do think that if you're going to compete in this territory. You have to have access to huge budgets or really niche content. So you become a specialist in an ultra sort of niche aspect of the content. Otherwise, the people in the middle will just be sucked up. We've been talking about um, new productions mainly, but um, let me ask you just a bit about the value of library content. Um, are you seeing that increase or these um, sort of libraries of uh, bankable you know, popular titles or, or maybe even long tail titles. Is that um, the kind of thing that has increased in value given the race to direct-to-consumer streaming? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think if you look at the music industry, it seems to be about 10 years ahead of the content industry. And when the music industry went online, initially there was a complete tail off in record sales and everybody, you know, bemoaned the loss of a whole industry. And actually, they said the only thing that was you know, happening was live events. Um, and then the streamers came on board you know, with, with Spotify and Amazon Music and all these companies. And they took the pricing point of, of music down to a point where everyone went, you know what, I don't mind this. I'm willing to pay $8 a month, $10 a month to listen to anything I want to listen to at any point. And what that did was create nostalgic listening. So you and I initially listened to all the funky new stuff. And very quickly, we started going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, and listening to things that we hadn't even thought of listening to before. So all these music libraries went from value less to generating income. 
And a lot of people must have got shocks where they suddenly started getting these big royalty checks. I think the same thing happened with libraries, that for a while they were mismanaged and left in small businesses that couldn't distribute them very effectively. So they were orphaned assets sitting in the wrong hands in the wrong country, and people couldn't actually access them. And I think now through the ease of the digital platforms, these films are now becoming absolutely valuable. So we're seeing them shoot up in value and we're seeing a lot of people let go of them and allow them to be arriving in the home that the marketplace is offering. Um, now pulling back just a little bit here in the seismic shifts in the industry that we've been talking about, who are the winners, who are the losers? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I think with, I think it's the players in the middle. I think that um, I think that people who supply sort of okay services to a small group of people will get washed away. And I think there's going to be very dominant, very big players that will have you know largely global networks that can be more efficient and reach more corners. And then I think there'll be ultra niche providers of content that specialize in narrow areas that are hard to get. And I think everyone in between will be sucked up. They'll either go out of business or be sucked up into bigger entities. So those are potential acquisition targets. They are indeed. You had mentioned before that that your belief is that um, even with this, uh, you know, stampede towards streaming, there's still going to be a need to monetize these entertainment properties off-platform. What do you mean for that, and what are the implications? Um, you know, for theatrical exhibition, uh, given that we're still in large parts of the world um, under lockdowns and theaters are not open wide. Yeah, I mean, I think Todd, what's happening is as the streaming platforms are launching and competing with each other, there is an acceptance that they have to consider off platform monetization. And what that means is, it's not just feeding it to the subscribers, but it's actually looking for other ways to monetize that intellectual property. And as we've seen across the board, uh, intellectual property can be turned, as you said, into theatrical, it can be turned into live performances, it can be turned into immersive theater, it can be books, it can be merchandising. There can be so many sort of extensions from intellectual property um, that it's just a fact that like the big studios before them, they will slowly increase their, their efforts to monetize. And one of the things we talk about is whether they're going to actually end up having a distribution arm. Because although the digital platform is effective in the countries that have the infrastructure, there's lots of countries that don't have the infrastructure. So they're actually talking about will they go sort of downstream and start having a distribution arm or even a broadcast arm that will seek to broadcast it to those terraces. One other question on industry trends. Um, do you see you know, this coupling of um, telecommunications and media? Is that a model that's going to survive you know, Comcast with NBCU and, and now Sky um, and AT&T with uh, DirecTV and Warner Media? Um, are those vertical integrations advantageous to those? Companies, or do those somehow become a liability? Well, I'm completely biased with my answer, but I do believe it's got a small amount of factual grounding. Um, 
I think that the technology platforms are becoming homogenous and a little bit like you lay the cabling and you know once you've laid the cabling, what do you put down it? I think that's the issue that both technology and telecom space, which is, you know, you can come up with a smarter piece of technology that slightly improves the quality of telecoms, but what are you what, why are people coming to you? What is the originality between the different providers? As the service becomes more and more homogenous between the groups, the one thing that distinguishes them is access to what comes down those pipes, what gets beamed to you. And I think content is something that everybody identifies with. It's quite funny when you talk to someone, you know, about a bioscience business or about even automotive, unless they're really enthusiastic, you can lose them within three minutes. But if you talk to someone about coming home and switching on the TV and watching a stream or watching a broadcaster, everyone has a personal view as well as a business view. Um, and I think that in, in this world, content is just critical. People talk about it. It's the new politics. It's acceptable to talk about your favorite show at a dinner party. Try talking about politics now. <laughs> well, um, and in this new world, data obviously has become um, a big piece. You know, it's, it's kind of a crown jewel. And, uh, you know, that's why you're seeing companies wanting to own that first party data. Um, does this, does, does, doesn't that put more leverage on the side of the content buyer as opposed to the content seller? That's interesting. Uh, I, I was planning on going on holiday and they said you have to have a COVID test. And in the small print, it said they own your DNA uh, information. And I was quite alarmed by that um, as that could be a, According to Yuval Harari, that, that would be the next bit of data we're giving away. Um, with content, um, I think it, your question is probably aimed at the US, where the buyers or the commissioners of the content usually end up owning the intellectual property. Um, in other countries in the world, it can be the creators that end up owning that intellectual property. And what we've seen in a, a very competitive environment is that as you the creator can negotiate with more than one party. You can start by having quasi-ownership rights, and that could be having points on the back end, that could be having a lifetime right to produce it, and it can even be a share of income from the content. So I, I agree with you. I, th I think that in this country, there is definitely a vault of content that is created uh, by the buyers, but I still think that new content pips the day in terms of, you know, attracting audiences. It's about that renewal piece. Yeah, right. Um, so ACF does have a global purview. You're a, you're a relatively small investment bank, but you're, um, you've got uh, uh, transatlantic uh, operations here. Um, are we seeing deals more global in nature now that you have uh, companies that do span Global global operations and does that um, does that change the nature of um, of how those deals are done? Uh, that, that's a good question. I mean, we we kind of operate in a space of about fifty million dollar deals going up to about two billion dollar deals, and most of the investment banks who operate in that space do not have a transatlantic footprint. They don't have a global footprint. But I've actually found 
that a significant number of our deals involve parties selling from UK, Europe into the US and people from the US selling into Europe, UK. There just seems to be a lot of transatlantic interest, both in terms of the style of content and the wish to access um, the, the sort of consumer or the, the subscribers. So I think we are unique in that regard that we maintain that global presence but can service deals of that size. Why do you think there is that interest in getting foreign product, if you will, to a domestic audience? Well, I definitely know that in the UK and in Europe, the idea is that the budgets in the US are just significantly higher. Um, so there is a lot of golden-eyed sort of envy that they're going to, if you want to make a lot of money, you have to come to the US and be able to access those budgets. At the same time, it is extremely hard to do that from the UK, you know, because you have to set up a team, you have to access the market. The US market, they certainly welcome Europeans into their content world, but you need to have a base here and you need to be accessible. And then I think for the US, because they have such a strong dominance in the content space, they like the uniqueness and the sort of idea generation that comes out of the UK or Europe. I mean, Gamora is, is a good example of a show that was in Italian um, and, and had subtitles, yet it totally increased the interest in the Italian-based content. And, and just to tell our listeners, that deal involved who? Um, Gamora sold to, uh, sorry, Gamora was produced by Catalea, who sold to ITV. Mm -hmm. And uh, has done pretty well, I think. I think it has. And we've recently done a deal with um, a Spanish-speaking group called The Immigrant, who we helped uh, launch their Pronto, um, I think, last year. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you you had pointed out that, that foreign language content, it's really been this second-tier uh, creature for the last couple of decades, and now you're seeing a lot more interest in that um, from across the landscape. Correct. And what I'll say, I'll slightly adjust that because I don't want it to be viewed as second tier content. What I'll say is that uh, the English speaking broadcast has put it into a tier two interest um, because they found that it was too hard to deal with and they were worried about consumers being able to enjoy it. And what's happened in the last 24, 36 months is again, I think it's the idea of this freshness that you see that you see the content put together in a different way with a different vibe and a different energy. And people are finding that refreshing. Because and I think this is one of the byproducts of streaming and watching and binge watching. So previously with network and broadcasts, we had to wait once a week to watch our favorite show. And the formula in the show was not necessarily visible. Bad guy comes in, going to do something bad, scares everyone, fails, but then manages to do it. But then the good guy stops him at the end. Yeah, that's what we watched once a week. And we found the formula refreshing because we could watch it time and time again. It was familiar. When you watch seven of them back to back over three hours, the formula becomes very apparent. And we start going, okay, when's the good guy going to get the upper hand again? And then he's going to lose it again. And he's going to... So actually, I think consumers have become much more aware of that formula. Much, it's much more visible. So when you get a foreign speaking content with a different formula, it's just enough to throw people and keep them much more interested. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, back to this, this question of 
you know, there's so much money being spent on um, original content and, and to some extent library content to feed the streaming services as everyone's trying to get an edge and uh, capture their, their customers. And people have been complaining about the glut of uh, content that's out there. There's just uh, thousands and thousands of hours. Um, do you see that as potentially depressing uh, new productions going forward? Or is, or is this appetite for original content going to continue unabated? Well, I'd suggest after COVID that we've all searched high and low through each streaming service and watched <laughs> a whole heap of content. And then because productions have, haven't been able to really happen, I'd say right now they're screaming out for even more content, the sure. new content. I mean, I think there's always nostalgic watching, but I think when people are viewing their annual subscription going out the door, if they're not getting a good dollop of kind of new content that's exciting and innovative, I think they'll challenge them. You know, we've been debating in the industry how many services the average family will have. And, you know, we're kind of thinking that it will be three, maybe four. Um, and if you agree that Netflix and Amazon and Disney, you know, are kind of three of the main ones, there's kind of a space for like plus one. So there's going to be fierce competition to fill that slot. Yeah. Um, and if you don't fill the slot, you know, it's, it's, it's enough that you fill it once, customers have to come back and watch it again and again and again and not turn it off because they're, they're you know, they're not giving you two-year kind of contracts. Back to the question of doing deals in a distributed remote uh, situation like we're in today. Uh, how has that changed the process? Do you, and do you think we'll ever go back to these in-person uh, negotiations as a primary meeting format? It's interesting because if you speak to people who are fortunate not to have lost anyone to COVID or suffered any serious business harm, you know, from COVID, i.e. their business being shut down. I think a lot of people have found this period, this last eight months, 10 months, um, to have a lot of advantages, not just disadvantages. And we've certainly seen the ability to, you know, face-to-face -face Zooms and meet people around the world without having to fly there to be immensely efficient. And all data is digital nowadays, so there's no need to sit in the room, there's no need to share a physical contract when you can do it all over email. So I think we almost were being um, nostalgic up until 2019, and it was a considered a courtesy that you would meet people face to face, shake hands, and somehow the firmness of the handshake would tell you whether they were truthful or not. <laughs> um, I think that's all been blown away now. So I think the efficiency of this has already been proven and is factual that lots of businesses find it more efficient. I think the flip side is when I heard today that there is a potential vaccine and you know it's 90% effective, you know, you immediately as a human being get a joyous feeling of freedom and adventure. And I think that will come back much quicker than people expect. And when your competitor actually flies over and meets them and you don't, um, I think that'll be the point where you get back on the plane and say, it's time to do it again. But I'd like to think that we can at least cut down the extra bits. And, you know, this, this incessant traveling around the world to endless markets, you know, this incessant sort of 
traveling backwards and forwards, east coast, west coast, you know, I'm hoping that can all reduce. But I think there'll always be a place for face-to-face and, and human content. Now, Thomas, you mentioned a, a couple of the pending deals that you've been working on have been have been tabled. Um, what are what's getting the most attention at this moment? And then looking ahead to 2021, what do you see happening as hopefully restrictions start to ease up? I think at the moment we've seen that scripted content has led the way for the last couple of years. Certainly double digit and higher multiples are being paid for scripted companies. They can create compelling shows that, you know, keep the whole TV department relevant. And I think that's been a consistency of the last three, four years. What I've seen in the last 12 months, maybe 18 months, is a move into premium unscripted. Um, And I think that there has been a great interest in having high quality unscripted programs. Um, We did a deal with uh, Plimsoll last year and it it attracted interest from all over the globe. Um, And, you know, they do very high end unscripted content. Um, And I think that that to me indicated that the key word here is premium. And if you think what premium means, it means content with a brand, content with identity. And I think that in the world of global streaming, when you're being given a whole bucket of content, the thing that stands out is things that have identity with you. And the things that stand out are things that people have either told you about, you've heard about before, or you know some of the people attached to them. And that's how you choose your content. I doubt many of us click on the storyline and say, oh, it's about a little boy growing up in South Africa and then he grows a business and becomes, oh, maybe I'll watch that. We look immediately to see what is a brand that's on the screen that we can easily identify with. So what we're going to see going forward is that high-end, branded, recognized content, maybe a recognized director in the film, a recognized actor on the screen, or a recognized series that we've enjoyed before. What do you think the uh, impetus behind Unscripted has been? Um, I think it's this binge watching. I think after you've, and I think it's the formulas that people are using in Scripted, that after you've watched your 10th Game of Thrones series, you start seeing the high-end, glossy, scripted content, and you just don't want that formula for a while. You want to try something different. And I certainly, as a viewer, have done that. And you start looking at documentaries, you start looking at biographies, you kind of move away from that kind of drama and action and you start looking for something else. I think it's a consumer-driven push. I mean, it must be said, it's more cost-effective on a per hour of production, isn't it? I mean, it depends, actually. I mean, if you get into some of the natural history programs that take five years of guy lying on top of an iceberg with a camera to get, uh, it can get expensive. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, there's a, I think there is a lower pricing point, but the quality of the unscripted now is, is so high that it's not that much lower. Well, good. Thomas, any last thoughts on what we can expect to see in the, in the coming year in terms of M&A in the media and entertainment sector? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think for me, the thing that's interesting is when you look at this industry like we have over a 20-year time period, you know, we've seen genres come in and out of vogue. And if you remember, and if we push our minds back, you know, for a while it was the soap opera. Then we went into the shiny floor game shows. 
Then we went into scripted and everyone said it was too expensive, so we came out. And then we went into unscripted, cheap reality shows. And now we've gone heavily into scripted and now premium unscripted. My sort of guess is that the next area is going to be in comedy and game show again. Mm. I think it's going to be the rise of, you know, these kind of game shows that we used to see 10 plus years ago. Um, so I think the other thing is the non-English speaking content is going to continue to be of an interest. Well, thank you very much. Thomas Day of ACF Investment Bank. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from listeners. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Yeah.